the first five things you try may not work, but then the sixth one might be the magic thing. And, you know, kids and parents can lose faith that it's actually going to help because they've tried all these things and they've had bad side effects or whatever. And so it makes it harder for them to continue. Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. I am happy again to have Sarah Wayland here with me, and we're doing another Behavior Revolution episode, and really wanted to talk to you guys today about misinformation. There's so much misinformation out there about ADHD and autism, and we really struggle with knowing what to believe, what not to believe. And I see it so much in our online communities that parents aren't sure of what to do when and what information they can really act on and what information they probably should just skip over and move on. And so I think it's really important to maybe talk about some of that because Sarah and I both have vetted a lot of that information over the course Mm -hmm. of many years raising kids with ADHD and autism. And so we can sort of interject some wisdom here. And I think the amounts of weight that we should give to different information that we get, like where we get it from, who we get it from, you know, how likely is it to work for my kid, that sort of thing, I think is really important for parents and caregivers to understand because it is so overwhelming. So overwhelming. It's overwhelming and it's hard to know which sources to trust. Mm -hmm. You know, like everybody says, oh, my way is the good way. And it's hard to know when that actually is meaningful. You know, it's just hard to know. And I think that people have gotten really good at, you know, faking that there's science behind something, faking that lots of people are saying it's the best thing ever, you know, that mm-hmm. that they're making their website look like it's something that's wildly successful and backed by research when it isn't always the case to that full extent, right? And so just being able to know how to sort of vet the information even that's there, once you say, okay, well, this looks like it's profoundly effective for a lot of people, you probably need to go a step further, right, to even decide if that's true, which is a lot of work. We're asking people to do a lot of work. We are. (laughs) Or the world's asking us to do a lot of work. Right. And, you know, if we're not trained in some discipline, which, you know, why would we be trained in these things, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's very hard to evaluate. You know, if you're I'll use you as an example, right? You you know, you're really good at communications and things like that. Like, why would you know about psychiatric medication? Yeah, exactly. And we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. There's so much nuance around just ADHD medications alone Mm -hmm. that a lot of physicians, even psychiatrists, don't know. And what are parents supposed to do with that, right? Like, where are you going to learn it? For you and I, we got online, right? We read things, we figured things out, we eventually found information that was more detailed and more helpful mm-hmm. than kind of the general basics. And it's just sort of mind-blowing to me that this is still reality. 
You know, my kid started ADHD medication almost 15 years ago when he was diagnosed and mm-hmm. and it was that way then, but it still seems to be almost the same way now. It does. And there's more medications now to try to weed through. And we do have an episode very early on, the, probably the first year of the podcast, talking about just some basics of ADHD medication for things that no one really told me mm-hmm. and were really, really helpful, such as... There's two types of stimulant medication, methylphenidate-based, amphetamine-based. One or the other works for most people, but almost no one has success with both types in the same individual. Mm -hmm. So, hello, that's really good information to have when you're trialing ADHD medication, right? And yet so many, even prescribing physicians, don't have that level of detailed knowledge. Well, and there's also the delivery mechanism, right? So Mm -hmm. when you said that, I was like, yeah, but then there's extended release and sustained release, and then there's Concerta, and then there's, you know, Quilivant, and, you know, like you have all these different delivery mechanisms. You've got the patch, you know, and, but if the patch is delivering, you know, an Adderall type drug, you know, as opposed to a Ritalin type drug, then you know, you're going to have different responses. And so people know the brand name or they know the delivery mechanism, but they may not understand that it's those two fundamental, you know, molecules that are different. And then there are different delivery systems. So you could even have somebody who maybe doesn't respond great to one form of methylphenidate, but they respond really well to another delivery mechanism for methylphenidate, Mm -hmm. right? or another formulation, right? Right, you know, I right. talk all the time about the fact that like, we have four, five, six, I don't even know how many there are now, different forms of methylphenidate, for instance, right. different brands and stuff. And every one of them is somehow different or they wouldn't all exist. Right. So yes, they're all the same type. They're all methylphenidate based, but they're still different. Even if two short acting in the same category can be different. Correct. Different additives, right, in the medications, all sorts of different things. Different absorption profiles, yeah. Yeah, and then there's the different time release mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Concerta's mechanism is only in Concerta. It's very different from, you know, the way a time release works in another medication. And for some people, even that makes a big difference because some are more smooth, some are giving more bursts, and people do better with different things. And I'll link up that episode in the show notes so that people can go back and get the full detail there um, because there's more even about it than we're going to touch on right now. But it's just so helpful for parents and caregivers to understand how things work, to understand the detail of something like a medication that isn't just prescribed based on age or weight. Right. It's totally different for every person and you've really got to understand all of those nuances in order to be able to be as effective as you can in helping your kid through trialing it and finding the right medication and dosage. Well, and that thing you just said, trialing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can't look at somebody and know what they will need. Right. So the first five things you try may not work, but then the Mm -hmm. sixth one might be the magic thing. And, you know, kids and parents can lose faith that it's actually going to help because they've tried all these things and they've had bad side effects or whatever. And so it makes it harder for them to continue. Yeah. And I think especially in teens and young adults, Mm -hmm. they tend to want to give up earlier. Yeah. 
less trust that it's going to work out, maybe just wanting to take control for themselves too. But, you know, I think what we're talking about here is really fear-based decision-making. A lot of times, like there's so many parents, especially when you have a new diagnosis that are like, I'm not giving my kid medication. I'm not giving my kid medication. And what I found most helpful in that really is to actually understand it fully because there's such misinformation about specifically ADHD medication out there. You're doping your kid, you're drugging them into submission, right? It's not that, it's actually the opposite of that. You're providing stimulation to calm them down, which makes no common sense whatsoever, (laughs) unless you're a neuroscientist, but that's the truth of the matter, right? And so you're not just trying to drug your child to a point that they're going to comply. That's not the point of it at all. It's just to fill in the gaps so that they're able to focus, to be calm sometimes, to, you know, maybe think about a decision and consider it before acting, things like that, right? And so I think so often we we immediately just fall into that pit of fear as a parent and we have to sort of take a step back and say, okay, well, this is the time where I really need to get a lot of information about a lot of things. And now you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much. And I think that overwhelm and not knowing what to trust creates more fear. (laughs) It's paralyzing for a lot of families. Well, and you get messaging from society writ large about medicating your Mm -hmm. child. And it doesn't make it easy to make a good decision or to trust what your doctors are telling you. You know, what I often say is people used to be that way about, you know, wearing glasses, right? They were like, if you can't see, I'm taking my glasses off here. But, you know, I would never say to somebody, oh, you shouldn't wear your glasses because, you know, that isn't necessary, right? We wouldn't say that now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, before people had glasses, they didn't even know that that was a difference people could have. It's a physical correction that you need in order to be able to function in the world. If I'm not wearing my glasses, I can't read, right? Yeah. Is that an unfair advantage? Is that a, you know, something I'm doing to make myself somehow less natural? Yeah, I'm less natural with my glasses, I suppose, but it makes (laughs) me functional in the world. It's a quality of life issue. Yeah. It's a quality of life issue. And I see parents all the time saying, or, you know, they're they're fighting with grandparents or other family members who are saying, you know, your kid did okay before that, or you'll get through it. They'll get through it. They'll learn. Or why does it have to be that hard? Why can't they have a little help? Because they need it. You know, there's so many arguments there that I just don't get. I can't wrap my brain around. But part of that is because I'm very educated on this now, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't always remember what it's like to really not know anything and be trying to figure out what in the world I should be paying attention to. And I think, you know, we can sort of branch out into non-stimulants, alternative treatments, that sort of thing, because there's so much of that. And I think that's often where we really struggle with knowing the reliability of something. Is it legitimate? Is it actually shown to be effective? How much of the population is it effective for? I think a lot about diet changes when we have these discussions. And, you know, there are a lot of people who say, oh, you can change ADHD with your diet. And for some people that may be true, but it's true because 
they have dietary sensitivities, not the ADHD. Or allergies. Right. Mm -hmm. It's something else that's going on. And yes, we see it more in that population. (laughs) We see it more in kids with ADHD or autism. They do have more food sensitivities. They do have more allergies. They have more medication and supplement sensitivities, skin sensitivities, like all of that. They're just Mm -hmm. a lot of times more sensitive creatures. So yes, some of those changes can help, but you're not actually helping the ADHD. You might be reducing things that felt like they were part of the ADHD. You know, the hyperactivity may come down some, but it's because you addressed a sensitivity or an allergy, not because changing your diet changes ADHD. Does that make sense? It's super important. And I was actually listening to a podcast that my sister introduced me to that was really amazing. And I'm going to look it up because it was about nutrition. It's called maintenance phase. And the issue that one of the episodes was about was sugar and the impact of sugar on ADHD symptoms. They were addressing, you know, nutrition and those arguments. And, um, you know, there's this whole idea that sugar or chocolate, you know, makes kids with ADHD worse. And what the research has found is that it's actually the situation. (laughs) That makes it worse. So the kids are going into a situation where it's exciting and, you know, there are a lot of other kids around and I don't know, you're climbing on a bouncy house or whatever. Like there's there's exciting yeah. things going on. And so, yes, you are a little more hyper or you're getting to see people you haven't seen in a while. And so kids are more hyper and all that. And that's what's making them more active in situations where they're eating sugary things. And it's mm-hmm. not, in fact, the sugar itself. They had some really interesting studies in this episode. They talked about mice who were (laughs) given sugar water versus cocaine-laced water (laughs) Mm. and looking at whether sugar has addictive properties in the same way that, you know, cocaine does. And what they found is, A, that the mice stopped giving themselves the cocaine at some point. Wow. We need to know how they did that. Yeah. Well, you know, they just stopped, you know, getting the water with it. Oh, I thought you meant that they actually stopped drinking the water with it. They did. They did. They just, you know, stopped drinking it because I guess it made them feel bad or something. And the sugar water, they really were just treating it like nutrition. Like it was like, I need to think hard and therefore I'm drinking a little more sugar now. Mm. You know, it was super interesting, super interesting episode. But You know, again, looking at the research behind what is it that makes kids hyper? Is it sugar? Is it, you know, they talked about the fine gold diet. They talked about all these different, Mm. you know, diets that people put their kids on. And one of the things they said, and I think this is super important, is that whenever you restrict something, it makes the kid crave it worse. And so what you're doing when you restrict food is you are actually making the person crave that food more, and then you're setting them up for an eating disorder. Mm, Yeah. And that's the way we grew up. Yeah. You don't get dessert unless you have dinner, unless you finish your dinner. Yep. And it's always a treat. Yep. It's always something that's not forbidden necessarily, but held tightly. (laughs) Like you really had to be on your game to get some sugar, right? Yeah. (laughs) It was a treat, a reward. And yeah. I think our culture has set up a lot of dysfunction around eating in that way, for sure. Yeah. The other thing that I think a lot of parents ask about or wonder about a lot is different types of brain training. Yeah. And there 
is even more available now than there was for you and I way back when our kids were younger. And there are more that are actually being studied, or they're studying it more, I guess I should say. And I think there's some good data there, but the longevity of of it seems to not yet be really known. You know, that one's really funny. And I, so I'll use neurofeedback as my example, because that's one I get asked about a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I find with neurofeedback is for the people it helps, it really does help. Mm -hmm. Like it can be life-changing, but there's a significant percentage of people it doesn't help. And I actually think this is a really important thing to talk about is individual differences. So there are individual differences in how we respond to things. So like you were talking about allergies a minute ago, like not everybody is allergic to, I don't know, red dye or something like that, right? Like not Mm -hmm. everybody has that allergy, but for the kids who do have it, it is a very real driver of behavior. And when you're doing research, if you have outliers like that in your data, they can pull the data you know, towards something having an effect or, you know, or not having an effect. And I think we really should be looking at what is it about the individual that makes them respond well to neurofeedback, for example. And if we can characterize, oh, this kind of person, you know, with these cognitive features is going to respond well, then that would be really helpful. But right now, what I have to say to people is, you know, well, nothing else has worked. And if you're willing to give it a try and, you know, have the money for it, you can do that. But I would, you know, ask the person you're working with, like, how long should it be before I should start seeing some impact here? And, you know, after that period of time, evaluate, are we seeing a difference? Do a baseline measurement, then measure after that period of time. And if you're not seeing a change, stop. Yeah, so many of these things, it's not going to hurt to try them. Mm-hmm. The only thing that you might waste is some money and some time, right? Lots of money and time. <laughs> and your kids' emotional energy, too, because your kids are mm, yeah. working. You know, like when you're doing these things, like your kids are, there's an impact on your children. Yeah. Right? So, you know, neurofeedback is work, and it's time they can't spend playing in the backyard. I think it's important, too, to say here that we're not against anecdotal evidence. Right. Everything doesn't need to be fully scientifically proven to work for all people in order to get behind it, right? It's just that there are many things that work for a few that are sort of presented to parents of kids, especially with ADHD, but also autism, as working for everyone. (laughs) And that's why I think we're really sort of driving home the idea of making sure that there's some evidence somewhere, but there can be anecdotal evidence. And I think often it is worth a try. You know, if you have the money to try neurofeedback, I certainly would have done it had we had the funds to do it when he was younger. I absolutely would have tried it. I knew people who had had their kids in neurofeedback and it had really helped. I knew people who had tried it and it didn't help. Right. I knew several who it helped while they were doing it and for a little bit after, and then it sort of wore off, right? It was something like more of a continual practice thing. If you continue to do this kind of thing, it's going to continue to help. And so, you know, I think being able to find people when you can who can say, yes, it worked for us, that's worth a try, or no, 
you know, I think some too about some other sort of national programs. I'm not going to name anything specifically that pull some things together and say, you know, this will absolutely change everything. They almost use the cure word, but not quite. And it's a whole lot of money. And what I find is, you know, I would say 98% of people who I've ever talked to about that program have said it did nothing. Mm -hmm. They spent a lot of money and a lot of time and it did absolutely nothing. And so I think, you know, it's nice that we have the ability now to go on like Facebook groups like we have and ask other parents, hey, have you tried this? What was the outcome for you? Knowing that not necessarily will your child get the same outcome. We're not saying that, but just sort of seeing Are there people out there that have had a positive experience from this particular brain training or supplement or whatever it is? I'd be very careful with supplements because a lot of our kids are super sensitive with them and you should always be careful with supplements and medication for sure. But really in general, you should be asking your doctor. So I want to make sure that we're, we're being clear about that too. Like you really need to be working with a physician around supplementation, but especially if your kid's on prescription medication as well, there can be some really negative interactions, yep. some extreme. I think there's just a handful, but there are a handful that can be really, really dangerous. So always, you know, not just, oh, my friend's kid takes this and they say it's working better. Like, okay, now take a printout of the ingredients and stuff to your physician yeah. and say, hey, I would like to try this with my kid. Is it a good idea? Right. Could we do that or not? I've learned to be really careful about that myself because I take blood pressure medication. So now I'm always like, oh, I can't start a new supplement unless I make sure, you know, that it's not going to interact with things that are working hard to keep me going, keep me alive. Right. You know, what's hard too, though, is that doctors are different about how much they believe in supplements Mm -hmm. and, you know, herbal remedies and things like that. And so, you know, depending on what you have access to, you may get advice, you know, to not use something that might be helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's where parents get, they're just like, okay, I'll try anything. You know, doctor says everything's bad, so I'll try anything. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. I mean, you know, with medications, I always advise people to work with a child psychiatrist who really understands, you know, ADHD or really understands autism. And, you know, good luck getting access to a psychiatrist, you know, there just aren't enough of them. Mm -hmm. And so people are forced into having to work with their general practitioner who may or may not understand the medications, may or may not understand these interaction issues, may or may not understand dosing issues. Yeah. And I would say sometimes it's about goodness of fit with your physician. Yeah. You know, I've had physicians in the past who are like, won't even entertain the idea of a supplement for something, right? And I just had to move on because to me, I want to consider possibilities. And if somebody's just going to shut me down, yeah, anytime I have anything to add to the conversation, right, it's not a good working relationship. I don't feel good about being heard, right? And Mm -hmm. I do want a physician with an open mind, personally. So I think, you know, sometimes it's your doctor's shutting everything down you ask about, maybe it's time to try to find a new doctor, (laughs) try to find somebody you feel better with. You know, I mean, sometimes you do hear wacky things on the internet or in a Facebook group Mm -hmm. and you bring it to the doctor. And if the doctor can say, okay, so yes, here is, you know, why people say that. Here's why I think it's a bad idea for your child. 
and explain that to you, Perfect. that would be okay, right? That's that's yeah. an actual yeah. conversation. But, you know, I don't do that or that's not advised. Like, okay, well, tell me why it's not advised. Like, do people die from, you know, liver failure because they take it? That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, like we're not saying if your doctor says no, I wouldn't give your kid bleach to cure something, <laughs> that that's a problem. <laughs> that's a good thing. What we're saying is more like if they're just shutting down every alternative other than medication, but you really feel strongly about, you know, navigating and trying and considering alternatives, then that's not really a good fit for what you want, what you're looking for in somebody who's going to guide you medically, you know. So let's sort of tie this in a bow here at the end and recap what we are talking about here. You know, one, I think, is to reiterate that we're not against anecdotal evidence. We just want you to make sure that there's some sort of evidence backing and to know that it doesn't have to be for the majority. You know, for instance, studies on ADHD medication, stimulant medication show that about 80% of people benefit from it if they have ADHD. Studies on B vitamins for ADHD or something like that are going to be a far lower statistic. That doesn't mean that it might not be helpful for you or your kid. Mm -hmm. It's just different, right? And so both of those, I think, can be valuable. The other is to be open to trying things, right? Be open to learning about medication, about other things that you're interested in, and being open to saying, you know, I can try this and keep notes. Yeah. Make some data for yourself. Yeah. So you can look back and say, yes, this really is helpful or no, it really wasn't helpful. Measure at baseline and measure after treatment. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And try to be as objective as you can, which is really hard when you're raising a challenging child, a complex child. But, you know, I found that I would go to the pediatric mental health MD that my son was seeing for a long time for medication. And every time I'd go in there every month, I'd be like, it's all bad. It's not good. It's not working. It's all bad. And he would ask me specifically what is not going well. I'm like, just all of it. It's all bad. And I finally started keeping daily notes because what I was realizing was that that really hard stuff was clouding every single thing for the whole month. And by the time I walked in the door, I was just exhausted and it was all hard and all chaotic. And so that's what was on my mind. So it was just all hard and bad, right? And I wasn't very clear and objective. And that's what he really needed to understand what sort of adjustments to make to medication and stuff. So I think that that's a really important piece of it is if you're going to try something, make sure that you're really keeping some notes you know, to that point, and I know you're trying to bullet everything out, but I just feel <laughs> compelled to add something, which is that knowing what that medication actually targets. So, mm -hmm. you know, like if you're taking a stimulant, then that might make it easier for you to sit still, or it might make it easier for you to stay focused on something, but it might not make it easier to... I don't know, play basketball or something, right? right? So knowing what you are specifically targeting can be really helpful so that you actually know what to look for. You know, I have a friend who used to say the pill is not the skill, 
it just makes you available to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think so often parents think the medication will automatically make their child have excellent executive functioning. No, but it'll make it easier for them to learn those executive functioning skills. Yeah, so important too. And sometimes we try medications off-label for things. (laughs) And so you're taking it for X, and that's what you need to be thinking about, not what, you know, most people take it for, maybe, mm-hmm. um, which is true of some ADHD medications and other things for mood and anxiety and depression. So that is really important. Mm-hmm. You know, the last and third bullet point I would make is just to trust yourself and trust your gut, you know, and if you feel like something seems a little too good to be true, there is a cliche for a reason. It probably is too good to be true, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, if somebody's promising you a cure, they can't deliver on that. That is not a thing. You cannot cure ADHD or cure autism. And just, you know, really focusing in on the little voices that you have as a parent, those are really powerful things. We have powerful intuition. Even if we don't know a lot about something, I find that often how I felt about it in the first place was pretty accurate a lot of the time. Not ADHD medication, though. (laughs) That one's Yeah, I was just going to say, you can, (laughs) you know, you said earlier, don't make your responses Mm fear-based. So it's really hard to know when your feelings about something are fear-based as opposed to rationally, this is what I'm truly seeing with my kid, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Somehow for me, I separate my gut instinct and fear. Maybe I'm just weird like that. (laughs) I'm not sure. Somehow I feel like my gut is more like pushing me to things and fear is like pulling me back from things, holding me back from things. But we're just getting into semantics here. I think everybody knows what we mean. Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot to weed through out there. There's a lot. And there's way more for people now who are starting than when you and I started you know, one of the big problems for us was there wasn't enough information out there. Yeah. Now there's too much. And, you know, there are some standards to sort of lean on to, like Attitude Magazine mm-hmm. is very reputable. Child Mind Institute is another one that I really love. Me too. Understood.org is great. Yeah. You know, these are all very tried and true, you know, science-backed publications and organizations that really do a good job of making sure that they're only putting out factual information. So when all fails, kind of, I think, lean back toward that, mm-hmm. back toward what you know is good and reputable. You know, if you're questioning something and you just can't trust the information you're finding, go to those sources you know and see what they have to say about it as well. And then always the support of community is so, so valuable for this journey. And I'll add a caveat there too, though, because as I was saying, you know, individual differences, they are real. So just because somebody has had a dreadful response to a particular intervention doesn't mean your child will have Mm -hmm. the same dreadful response. It might be the magic elixir that you need for your child. So sometimes I find those communities can be a little misleading Yeah, where somebody is like, oh, that was the worst thing for my kid ever. And yeah, it was the worst thing for their kid for sure. But that doesn't mean it's the worst thing for all kids. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we touched on that at the beginning, Mm -hmm. talking about how stimulants, you know, different stimulants work for some and not for others and vice versa. You know, your family does really well amphetamine based. It turned my kid into an aggressive monster. Frankly, Mm -hmm. he can only (laughs) take the methamphetamine based, but, you know, 
that's the thing that there are individuals who do really well on each medication. So there are lots of people who do good on Vyvanse. There are lots of people who do good on Concerta. They're not overlapping, but the medications exist because they do help some people. And I think that's really important to remember as well. Yeah. We are out of time. I think we've given people a whole lot to think about and chew on here at this discussion. It's just really, it's tough. It's tough to just dive in out there. You need to find sources where you know that the information has been really sort of vetted mm-hmm. and has too, I think, some level of experience behind it as well. Meaning like, you know, the things that we put out into the world also very much have our perspective in them as moms of neurodivergent kids and the experiences that we've had, the things we've tried that just don't work for almost anyone and, you know, stuff like that. And so (laughs) I think finding sources with that as well can be really helpful to parents too, not just clinical sort of publications or forums, but also those who are living it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So for everyone listening, you can get links to some of these podcast episodes that we mentioned in the show notes for the episode. You can find those at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 219 for episode 219. And I will see everybody on the next episode. Take good care. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and at thebehaviorrevolution.com.